This is Whitley Strieber, and this is Dreamland. You've reached the edge of the world. Today on Dreamland, we have a guest who's been with us a number of times before, from a long time ago, the old days when we were talking about things like indigo children. And now uh, we've talked about many things over the past few years. I believe PMH Atwater was with us first in 2008. Now it's 2023, so we've been friends for a while. Uh, she's got a remarkable new book out. She's become one of the world's leading experts on near-death experiences. And I'd like to welcome you to Dreamland, PMH, PMH Hi. Atwater. There she is. Hi there. <laughs> yeah. Now, uh, the new book is called Edgewalker, and it is The Many Lives and Deaths of PMH Atwater. And we're going to explore this very carefully because this is a person who has been there and done that. And because of all of her personal near-death experiences, she has become an, a, a, one of the world's leading experts, as I said. There's something at the beginning of the book that I think is very important that PMH says, trust only what you can verify yourself. Nothing else is true. And I think that's been one of the great signals of your whole life. Tell us about your, your, your early years and World War II and beginning to get into, uh, just, just let's just let you roll for a while. Tell, tell us about where we, we, you come from. Well, first of all, it was Dr. Kenneth Ring who insisted I write the book. He said, we know a lot about your research, but we don't know you. So that book took me five years to write, five different versions. So um, please know it was difficult for me to do. Um, my life begin begins in uh, around one o'clock um, in the very early, early morning. I was born maybe about three quarters of a mile from the great huge Snake River Canyon. So Edgewalker, you bet I'm an Edgewalker. I've walked a lot of canyon walls. Uh, I was born to a woman. Um, gee, in, in those days, um, illegitimate children, uh, uh, having a, a baby out of wedlock was considered a crime. And my mother was punished for that. Um, and uh, um, she wound up um, uh, with a room with Norwegian people, songs, S-O-G-N, from the Song of Fjord. And I, they more or less took me over. So I spent, <laughs> I, I spent my uh, ba babyhood in their bedroom, not my mother's bedroom. So, so, so I was raised by them. I did not know my mother was my mother until I was four years old. I thought the songs were my parents. So that, that gives you a, a sort of a, a way of, of, of looking at my life as being very, very different. 
but also bear in mind, I was born before World War II. So we've got the war years. We've got Hitler. We've got what I call his goose steppers. We've got Pearl Harbor. And I had to walk uh, from where, where I was staying to, to my school. And it was a long walk, a very long walk. And in those days, if anybody died in, your, um, in the war effort in your family, the government supplied you with a large gold star decal, which you put in your living room window to let everybody know, um, you, know you know, what happened in your, in your family. And literally, my walk to school every, every morning was the walk of death because there was all of these gold stars in people's windows. And this one morning, um, it was like four, it was like maybe five or six new gold stars overnight in this person's window. And I just stood there and sobbed and sobbed and sobbed. Oh my, in one family. In one oh. family. And, and I, I was just horrified. And, you know, I can't, Whitley, I can't recall a single morning when I didn't have to quiet my sobs and shut my shutters you know, just to walk in the door of my classroom. That's first grade. Then added to that, <laughs> I was born with stenesthesia and dyslexia. So I was the only kid in school who could smell color, see music, and hear numbers. And Are you still like that? <laughs> well, yes, <laughs> I am. Not as not as much as I was, but yes, I'm still like that. I do indeed have stenesthesia. And, and, you know, what we know now is many, many near-death experiencers. Um, that's part of the after effects of stenesthesia. In other words, the limbic system in your brain alters and changes how you view the world and what you are able to speak and see. But I was born with that. So, you know, my classroom years sitting on top of that stool with, with a, having to wear a dunce cap as a, an example of a bio, bad child who told lies. Um, at the end of that year, I was just so angry. I, I was, Whitley, I was just so angry. I, I decided that I never wanted to be an adult when I grew up because adults are stupid. <laughs> yeah, I can understand why you would decide that. So my growing years were very much tied to what I can prove, what I can see, what I can hear, what I can prove. I then uh, finally married, had three kids. Ah, yes. Well, let me let me go back just a moment to the synesthesia. Uh, can you describe what that's actually like? What do give us an example of what a color like blue smells like to you? Icy. Icy. 
And does it, do you see it as well? Do you see the colors? Well, not, not as much now as I used to, but I did smell them. Mm -hmm. And to me, blue was, was ice. It had this smell and feeling and um, it, it was an icy color. <laughs> Interesting. This is fascinating. I've never really spoken to anyone who had this before. Um, and uh, we have a, a ghost in this show, by the way, folks. It's not. It's on my side, not on PMH's side. And I don't think she can hear it, but you probably will be able to. There's absolutely nothing I can do about it, as you well know. Now, my my listeners uh, are aware of the fact that the show is dogged by weird electronic interference, and this is not an echo. It's a, it's some kind of a feedback inside my system, and we'll just have to get a sound man here to fix it soon. Are you sure it isn't, Dan? <laughs> I no, I'm not. I, I'm not sure of anything. So you get married, and now this life. This is we're talking about a very difficult life here so far. You 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 have the confusion of discovering at the age of six that the people you thought were your parents aren't your parents, and your mother is this other woman that's living there that you don't really know very well. That's so. Very very true. You're very and, confusing. Uh, and you know, you, <laughs> as best I can. <laughs> you mentioned Ken Ring, and Anne, my wife Anne and I years ago funded a study for uh, that he did that of, of close encounter witnesses and the Omega uh, Project. Yes, exactly. And uh, he found the one consistent thing about them was that they had traumatic childhoods. Now, I don't think you've ever had any close encounters or sightings or anything like that, have you? It's not mentioned I in the book. Very def definitely had a very traumatic childhood, not because of that. Yeah, exactly. What I had to face in the war years. Right. And, and that was everywhere, uh, really difficult. And my, my own differences in, in, in myself having to be um, listened to and, and being able to live in the world. It, it, it was difficult for me to live in this world. It really was. Uh, you, you, you'd go to a movie, for instance, um, Saturday morning movies in Twin Falls, Idaho, and you, you get the, uh, you know, your cowboy stories and you, uh, you get the adventure stories and always there is news and the news is always hitler stomping away on on his podium and his goose steppers going by that's what i called them and and all of where you know everywhere outside were these posters buy war bonds and everybody was concerned about the war that's all that's that's all you know air raid drills we often had air raid drills and and uh, when the drill master came to your door and knocked on your door of course you had to answer uh, there could there could not be any light in your home at all if you were smoking you were fined no my word so that that's pretty intense but so you had a you had a <laughs> a, a sort of essentially traumatic childhood 
Now you grow up and you you find a husband, you find a family, you create a family, and I want to repeat a quote that E. e. Cummings uh, from E. e. Cummings. That's a wonderful quote that's in the book. It takes courage to grow up and turn out to be who you really are. Oh, amen, amen. Yeah. Now, why did you put that quote in this book? Because it was very, very difficult to figure out who I was. Exactly. That's exactly what I thought you would say. No, absolutely. So, and and what saved me was um, an attorney's secretary said you she knew this guy who was um, uh, a handwriting analyst for the sheriff's department and um, would he would I give him a sample of my handwriting so I just copied a paragraph out of the phone book and mailed it to him forgot all about it and um, a month later he wrote back and he kept saying you're in the wrong job you are in the wrong job. You need to be a writer. And I said, me? I've never done any yeah. writing. He says, you need to be a writer. So I finally, you know, the, the, the idea for me was, like it says in the Bible, for those, those who knock, the door is opened. So I started knocking on doors, that is to say, meeting people. And really, in the downtown streets of Boise, Idaho, I would stop people at random and say, do you know anything about a writer's club or, or people who know anything about writing? And the third person I stopped did. Oh. Get the name and phone number, so I called her up, uh, attended my, my, my first meeting of the Idaho Writers League, and I, I really, I felt, I felt like I was on another planet. They were inventing people, happy people, just wonderful people, angels as far as I was concerned. And you had to submit three works in order to be um, even considered. And on the night when my, when the, when um, I was considered, um. This fellow who was writing professionally for the Saturday Evening Post said, I vote her in. She's a natural born writer. Oh, well. I put it in. It's like, whoa. That's and, wonderful. And it all started with uh, with kind of throwing your fortune to the winds. Uh, absolutely. We, we and, have to take a little break right now, PMH. And we'll be right back. And when we get back, we're going to be talking more deeply about a life that makes some very sharp and extraordinary turns. We'll be right back. We're talking to PMH Atwater. Her new book is Edgewalker. And her website is pmhatwater.com. You can connect with her there. Uh, the Many Lives and Deaths of PMH Atwater. So you are, you have become a writer by literally throwing caution to the winds and just asking people on the street. Amazing. Yes. yes. You built your life on that. Yes, I did. And during the process, I just started um, 
psychic things were always very familiar to me. I, I, I was born that way. I, 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 I was born a scientist and I was born as a psychic both at the same time. Both. both, both. So yeah. I, I started kind of trying to um, um, hold meetings for other people who might be interested. And during this process, created Idaho's first, uh, I, I went to the Eternal Gen uh, General, uh, our, uh, Idaho's first metaphysical corporation by the name of Inner Forum. We handled people by the thousands, literally by the thousands. Um, it went on for seven years. During this time, everything skyrocketed for me. Just now, now let's 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 get back to your motivation here, because you're suddenly you're writer. You're in the Iowa, Iowa Writers Group or, or Caucus, and now there's a shift to the metaphysical. Why was that? It was just there, so I ran with it. Uh, it was well, in you. It was somewhere in you. Um, I was seeing it in other people. I I was feeling it in myself. Mm -hmm. I wanted to know more, 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 more. And the way to do that is to talk to people, to have um, meetings, to have classes, to do all kinds of things. And we did. Uh, taught people uh, people how to do out-of-body traveling. We, we did it all. And, the, and then I decided that it needed to be incorporated um, to make it legitimate. That this is yeah. not some funny little flyby. What, what was the time frame of this? When were you doing this? Oh, gee, when was I doing this? It must have been. Um, see, I, I died. Yeah, okay. It, it would have been the um, the early and mid-70s. Okay. Very few people are going to pause and date something by looking at one of their deaths. We'll get the PMH's deaths in a little while. So this is the early 70s, and this sort of thing is not all that uh, not all that well known in the early 70s, but 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 it's building and we uh, made it well known. We made it well known with with yeah. like people, you know, we have people came by the thousands that's so fascinating because there was this pent-up demand out there and and what what was your what was your calling card what did what did they see that drew them to you to the group an opportunity to f find out more about the unknown worlds to find out more about themselves and what they were capable of doing uh, we even went on ghost haunting trips. You know, I mean, you name it, we did it. And people loved it. Of they, course. They just poured and they loved it. And we were doing well and I was doing well on my job. And my husband decided suddenly to leave and he left. And so I, there I am with the, the three children, children all by myself. And, um, I just reached a point where I'd have enough. So I, <laughs> believe it or not, I decided to become a bank manager. 
I just, okay. I'm going to leave it all and just leave it all and become a bank manager. And when I did, I'd, I'd been in the, in the school for a, a little while and all of a sudden I am raped. Uh, I, I became pregnant, lost the baby. We're now in late um, 1976. Um, I died twice. I died three times, literally, totally died three times. First one was uh, January 2, 1977, January 4, 19... Wait, 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 let's let's back up a little bit because before this, you were in the you were working in this metaphysical group and teaching people things like out of body experiences. So I worked out on it. Did you have them at the time yourself? Oh, sure, sure. sure. But you understand how how many people would like to have them and don't. Can you tell us a little bit about? how you learn to have out-of-body experiences they were they were just there uh, uh um but to do it on schedule we set up weekend actually they were three-day um classes where we would all get together with with uh, sleeping bags and we had a psychic there who could see and we'd set up these these um, these problems where you would go to such and such a house, and then describe what you saw, and um, we'd write it down everything that we saw. Then they would call they would call that that person at the house by phone, so all of us could hear. And and we could find it out whether or not we were right, because it's the person in the house. Yeah, I understand. And and we did a lot of that until we all be, became proficient. Uh, well, what, what technique did you use to get out of the body? It was a lot of what, what you might call meditation. That is to say, getting um to that point where everything is open and you are now um being able more and more and more to leave your body getting to the point where you can sit up and look around your body's still lying down but you're sitting up looking around and then getting to the point where you can leave your body and fly around the ceiling. So um, we drilled on this until we were ready to uh, handle these problems or these situations that were set up, uh, different houses, uh, people in them. And, and, and then we were told nothing more. So it was up to us then to go to the house um find out about uh, colors designs how it was set up and uh um whether the person you know what was going on in the house and um then after that was over you know we all did it then the head of our group then would call by telephone the people in the house 
and then rattle off what we all saw or, you know, on and on and on. And then the person in the house could say yes or no. Um, and we did a, a number of houses, a number of people to f find out whether or not we were actually there, whether or not what we saw was true. Um, it was it was a it was a wonderful way to learn. Um, you, you know, it, it was a great way to learn how to do it. I got to the point where um, I later became a hip, hypnotherapist and uh, did a lot of stage work where you're hypnotizing the person on the stage and then taking them into past lives and this kind of thing. Uh, you name it and I was doing it. Ghost oh, no. houses. I was, I was doing it all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should say so. And that's one of the reasons you're here because you really are a very remarkable human being because not many people do it all. But PMH Atwater has really done it all and uh, comes to us in a, a very strange way with an unusual brain, obviously, because of the synesthesia and the uh, other factors and a troubled, difficult childhood, trauma in your, your married life, the sudden disappearance of your husband and all of those things. Those things are about th those things are about living life, and they have tremendous energy, and that energy can go in a lot of different directions. In your case, that energy went to expanding the frontier, and that is that is the edge walking part of it. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so interesting because that's a choice you make somewhere inside yourself. Sure. How can you tell us when you were enduring these traumas, what kind of choice was going on? Because most people would just embrace the scar tissue and go on down the road with a who knows what PTSD or something, not do what you did. I was all I would always find a better way. Always, always find a, a better way. Uh, I, I was very deeply, deeply in love with God. Um, that source, that force was personal to me. It was real to me. And I filled my life with prayer and joy. And you name it, and I did it, including, you know, climbing all those canyons and the canyon walls out in the desert with, with the, the desert keepers. You know, when you're out in the Idaho deserts, the southern Idaho deserts especially, um, there are so many keepers out there. What are and, keepers? Um, um, sort of like people, only not. <laughs> uh, spirits that, that you... Uh, <clears throat> You you can talk to and 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 um, you know. <laughs> Do they ever become physical? Sure. Okay, I agree with you because I've realized just as we're talking, I've had that experience too. Sure. It, 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 in the desert, in the Mojave Desert, about three years ago specifically, 
And and now listen to all that funny noise that's erupting out of the you can't maybe you can't hear it, PMH, but my listeners will hear it. And it it's something to do with what we when we talk about the dead. It sounds it's very strange. That the, but uh, um, three years ago, I went to the Mojave Desert and spent a few nights in an isolated cabin at the end of a 10-mile-long dirt road, all alone. And people came in in the night. And then, but then, the next morning, I went to breakfast in the town because I hadn't brought enough food with me. And there was a there was a person there who didn't look exactly like the people who had come in. I thought the people who had come into the house were, were a dream, but she knew me, obviously. And I could be recognizable. I am somewhat recognizable uh, because of my television appearances. But this was different. And she and the man she was with were watching my every move. And I left the restaurant after my breakfast. And as I was leaving, to my amazement, they were standing not, they were not sitting in the restaurant anymore. They were standing at the door, but I hadn't seen them leave. And the woman looked at me with this fierce expression on her face. And the man said to her quietly, just let him go. <laughs> yes. Those were keepers, weren't they? They were keepers, sure. Okay, tell us more about keepers because I'm really fascinated. <laughs> um, there is not a spot uh, on earth where there isn't a spirit keeper of some kind. Whether they are, uh, um, whether or not they're in the form of a human being or whether they have other forms. They're, they're everywhere, absolutely everywhere. As a child, I would sit on a, um, a, a big log that was in a higher, a higher pasture. And, and I would just simply look at, at what was in front of me. And suddenly, a mountain would build. It, it, you can completely see through it, but it would build. It would build up, up too high. And I could hear them. Um, I couldn't, they, they didn't have any eyes and nose and hair, but I could hear them and talk to them and I called them the spirit keepers. And, and they told me that there is no spot on earth where there is not a spirit keeper, that, that, that they keep that, that energy um, to gather so that planet earth can um continue uh to be the planet that we know without the spirit keeper there's no one there to really nourish and help the materialistic of, of, our, of our planet well we've got a lot of problems with our planet right now so they must be working <laughs> overtime i hope they i hope they don't quit that's the kind of life I had until I died. Yeah. You know, okay. We're, we're, that's a that's a good good point to take another break. We're going to take our second break right now, and 
we will be right back. And when we do get back, it's time to talk about PMH Atwater's many deaths. We'll be right back. We're talking to PMH Atwater. Her new book is Edgewalker. Her website is pmhatwater.com. You can engage with her there. Buy the book. Uh, it's a full of wonderful wisdom and great stories about a really, really unusual life and an unusual person who started out more than a little weird. <laughs> oh, come on. Come on. <laughs> and uh, this is different. <laughs> just a bit different. Yeah, exactly. Now, let's talk about your first, the first time you died. Well, you know, I was raped and um, miscarried. So the first first death was January 2, 1977. Second one was January 4. Third one was March 29. And then later that year, I had three major relapses. Um, I had to learn how to crawl, how to walk, how to stand how to rebuild my life from scratch these 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 experiences that i went through wiped my mind clean just wiped it clean so i had to relearn everything from scratch so what happened you had a miscarriage and then obviously health issues afterwards yeah it, it just took away everything so it was the loss of blood or were you did you have sepsis or <laughs> the brain, everything. In other words, I had no idea what a phone was. I had no idea what a newspaper was. I had no idea who I was. Was it, the rapist ever caught? Or? Well, you know, he came back into my life just before the 29th of March. This of this year? Of that year. Of that year. Okay. 1977. And it'll blow, uh, it'll blow you away what happened. It's in the book. He came and he said, found out where I was then living, walked into the house, said his daughter was raped. And it so infused him and maddened him that he decided to rape a woman himself to find out what it was like. And then he walked out. You know, and I'm just standing there so stunned. I, I just, he could have beat me up. Uh, and and I, I literally died. I fell, I died. It was my son who found me later. Um, I, I left the planet. I left, ah, oh, I just left everything. I, I, I did not want to come back. I was through with life. I was through with all points of life. I knew that my children would find a good life and that uh, I wanted nothing more of planet Earth and being a human being and none of this gone, gone, gone. Well, what I, what I found in that third near-death experience, so stunned me that I was in, I was in awe. 
what of what was in front of me. And then I heard this voice speak very, very loud. And it said, test revelation. You are to do the research. One book for each death. It didn't talk about book one. I don't know what that book was. I think maybe coming back to life, my first major book. Then it, it, it talked about future memory, that I was to write future memory. The future memory is not a book, by the way. It's a labyrinth. Uh, I, think, I think we've talked about it before on the show. Yeah, go ahead. Labyrinth. Then book uh, three, a manual for developing humans. How many of us know that hue was the ancient sound or tone of God? So human was God, man, God, woman. Um, so the book helps you in very easy ways to be who you are. You are a, a co-creator. Um, you are part of God. You are. Absolutely. That's very true. And discovering that is a, a tremendously freeing thing because it makes you realize that your ego isn't you. Yeah. And, and one of the first things any near-death experiencer has to learn afterward is how to talk and how to think because you're different. And so the book right away teaches you how to talk and how to think. And it does so in fun, wonderful ways. And it's full of thought form drawings. So get that, those two major books. Um, yeah. Uh, and on, you know, it just started this drive I had to find other near-death experiencers. And I did for years. And then Kenneth Ring found out what I was doing, um, invited him, uh, um, asked to stay overnight one weekend with my husband and myself. I'd since married by then uh, to Terry Atwater. And he came over, the, the, uh, spent the weekend, saw what I was doing. And I, I had easily 700 people by then. And and he, he said, you know, he says, you know more about the near-death experience than anybody else. You've got to go up to Connecticut and meet your peers at the at um, the International Association of Near-Death Studies. They, they, they'd just been in existence like three months. And, and so I did, I went up there <laughs> and I, I tested their files and the people they met with my own files and the people I had met uh, and found out, you know, everybody is talking about unconditional love, unconditional love, unconditional love. When my files were full of people who, who went through great pain, divorce, uh, all kinds of, of, of difficulties. And I began to see that this idea of in, unconditional love is true. But getting to that point and staying to that point and understanding that point demands 
that we rethink and and reconfigure and redo our lives. And that can be difficult. Uh, With near-death experiencers between 71% to 80% wind up in divorces within seven seven, uh, years of their experience. Yeah, they do change profoundly. My wife had a near-death experience and changed profoundly. They do. But for the better, I mean, we were closer than ever after her NDE, so. Well, that's what the book is for, A Manual for Developing Humans. To help you then be able to handle this or anything like this and, you know, kind of figure out what it's all about. And uh, so I've been, I've been, I've been doing this absolutely every day, every day. And I, you know, my research base now is nearly 5,000 adults and children. I'm mentioned in um, uh, Lancet Medical Journal. You know, I've really been a good solid researcher. And then, Whitley, hold on to your hat. Last year, August, um, mid-August, 3.15 in the morning, that voice came back the the uh, you know the voice march 29 yeah. i remember the you just came yes. back came back and it said you are now you now must research all those near death experiencers who either during their experience or within one year after their experience faced something alien. Wow. That that, that one year, it, it has to be that one year because after that year, lots of near-death experiencers, you know. Did, yeah, exactly. Question. Uh, before, before their near-death experience, some of them were, uh, you know, saw spaceships. That particular year, the is is really um special for some reason i don't know yet but i'm going to find out so if anybody in the listening audience the near death near death experiencer who during their experience or within one year afterward experienced something alien i need to know about you get a hold of me at pmh at pmhatwater.com. If you send me your experience, please send me permission to use because I can't do anything without permission from you. Uh, You'll be given a number and um, a a nickname or, or, you know, a single name of some kind. Um, I'll be working on this for certainly the rest of this year maybe in the next year, uh, and, we'll, and we'll see where this leads. I don't know. Um, but isn't that an overriding theme in your life? You always go to the edge. You don't know, but you do it anyway. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And all kinds of incredible things have happened. And you're guided by this voice. Uh, free Dreamlanders, we have come to the end of our time together. 
uh, subscribers. We will keep on keeping on. Uh, do get PMH's book. The wonderful book, Edgewalker. You've seen the cover now a number of times as we've gone through the show. You can get it through unknowncountry.com or your local bookstore or any of the websites that sell books, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's available everywhere. Well worth your time. And especially if you have been a near-death experiencer, this is a good new beginning for you. Visit PMH on her website, pmhatwater.com. Thank you, Whitley. Love you. And too. Hi. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, we're going to continue on uh, with PMH Atwater. Uh, we're going to be talking to her now, uh, going a little deeper into the nature of the near-death experience and where it takes us. And then we're going to perhaps talk about past lives, uh, because I know you've explored that as well quite extensively. Um, the Now, when a person has a near-death experience, when Anne had hers, she went to a big room that looked to her like a bus station or a train station. And there were all these people holding bundles of luggage and baggage. And she knew that they would sit there until they let the bundles go and drop them. Now, what, what is the meaning of the near-death experience? What does it teach us? When you're looking for meaning, you need to first ask the individual, individual um, what they think. Because you can't give them meaning. They give you the meaning. Yes. What, was, what was the meaning for them? What we're finding out overall with the millions of people who have had these is that it enables that individual to change and change in very appreciable ways. Um, change in a way that their life becomes more open, more um, I, I, I'm struggling for words because with um, it's different for different people, but it certainly opens them up to a different way of living and a different way of thinking and a different way of talking. And, and, and that is both wonderful and not wonderful. Depends on the individual. Yeah, yeah it can be not wonderful. Uh, it was wonderful for Anne, and I know exactly what you're speaking about because I lived it with my wife. Uh, but it's not wonderful for everybody. No. What happens to some of the people who it's not wonderful for? Well, for some, it's hellish. For some, it's very difficult. In my own research base, one out of seven had a hellish experience. Um, one, of, one of the things I want to share with you that I think is so important and teaches us more than we could possibly imagine. I, I was giving a talk at a very, very large room. I, I don't know how many people there, very large. When I was through, 
I said, is that if there anyone out there who would like to share their near-death experience? Well, one man, you know, um, very much wanted to share his experience, and a woman did. Uh, the man, I'm thinking maybe, maybe um, early 30s, the woman maybe middle, late 30s. So the man was first, came up to the mic and talked about the most beautiful, beautiful near-death experience you could possibly imagine. Uh, people were almost crying. They were just, oh, so held by his story. And then at the end of his story, he shocked everybody by saying this was the worst thing that ever happened to him. It screwed up his life. He wished it had never happened. And as far as as far as he was concerned, it was absolutely the worst thing that ever happened to him in his life. Now, why <laughs> did he say that? Wait a, wait a minute. And then the woman stands up. And she talked about storms and 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 dark skies and thunder and and she slips and falls into a whirlpool and and she's um just straining and, and trying every way she can to get out of the whirlpool and get to the bank and and get out of the water and and then <laughs> again she shocked the whole audience by saying this was the best thing that ever happened to her in her life Wow! It, it showed her that no matter what happens, you can solve it. You can get out of it yourself. So um, I, I share that with you because a beautiful experience is not necessarily beautiful to the experiencer. A hellish experience is not necessarily hellish to the experiencer. We have to hold back judgment and and look at the experience itself and how that helped or hurt the individual. Um, you know, that's the important yeah. because Now, the man who saw the beautiful experience and reacted so badly to it, why was his reaction like that? I don't know. I have no Was way it because that. he tasted heaven and then had to come back here? I have no idea. Because, you know, in, in the Greek writer Herodotus, uh, he claims that people who went to Mount Olympus and saw the gods and lived in the gods, land of the gods, which would be the equivalent that we would have now, we would call it an NDE, were given before they returned to this world a drink called the milk of Nepenthe, which would make them forget the beauty of it. Otherwise, they would commit suicide in an effort to come back, go back. They'll do anything to go back. And it's painful to see great beauty and then not be able to, to have to leave it. But, but bear in mind, there are after effects. And those after effects really bothered him. And I think that's really why he he did not like having a, a near death near death experience because it required him to think differently, act uh, different uh, differently. It it changed his life, and he didn't want his life changed. 
Yeah. So I, I really think that um, that's probably why, because when we're talking about the near-death experience, we're also talking about after effects. We're talking about electrical sensitivity. We're talking about anesthesia or changes um, in in the brain, um, in the limbic system of the brain. We're we're we're, we're talking about um, changes in sound, changes in um, taste and texture. Um, what I one of the things I warn with parents. Um, children who have near-death experiences. You know, children are medicated according to weight and age. If that child had a near-death experience, you've got to throw that out the window and and look at them very, very, very differently and lower the dosage to the lowest possible dosage that um, that um, that they can have. Um, case in point, and this is not a ch child, but case in point, John Hopkins, um, emer a hospital emer emergency room. God bless that doc when he was doing the workup uh, with a, a woman who had come in and uh, a real emergency case. He asked her, did you ever have a near-death experience? All doctors must act ask that of their yes own. you're quite right absolutely he said she said yes so again he lowered the dose to the um um uh, the lowest possible dose and then in the, in the morning she went home and she was just fine um you cannot handle big dosages after that um most of us um, learn to go the natural route afterward um, rather than go to a medic because it makes all the difference in the world and how you feel and what you're able to do with the illness or uh, scratch or whatever it was. Um, you lower your dose. For myself, I use only natural vitamins and this kind of thing. Um, I, I don't use um, the normal, quote unquote, normal kinds of medications or vitamins. No way, no how. Why not? Uh, because of that. There, there's just, um, I cannot handle that. I have, I have electrical sensitivity, for instance. I cannot have... Uh, an iPhone at all. Um, so what does it, what, do, what, do, what happens when you are around it? What are the symptoms of electrical sensitivity? Uh, well, for, for, for an iPhone, uh, they bite me. <laughs> I, I can maybe hold it for maybe three minutes and then I've got to get rid of that thing. It hurts. Um, electrical sensitivity. I'm not as sensitive now as I was, but you have that spinning, that hurt. It, it literally hurts your body, your head, all parts of you. So we've converted everything in our house. Um, um, 
we have very, very low, what's the word, do dosage for getting currents in here. Uh, we have the lo lowest possible dosage for a computer um, because I can't handle the, the usual five or six, whatever. So what happens when you get uh, into that level of frequency? Um, it, it literally hurts this, this one time when, uh, I thought we would try four, you know, four, whatever. And, and so the telephone company, uh, did that. They, they upped our dosage, uh, of, you know, what I could get. And so I thought, oh, this is great. I can now handle, you know a higher dosage of amps. <laughs> and so I turned it on. Within three minutes, my skin was bright red and boiling. I, I had to rush upstairs, get aluminum foil, cover my arms and, and around my head so I could go downstairs and turn my computer off. That's My how word. it was. And and they had the telephone co company <laughs> lower our digital imprint, whatever whatever the proper words are. It's very that interesting because there are quite a few people who have close encounter experiences develop um, uh, electrical sensitivity as well. I don't have as bad a case of that, but I certainly do have it. And uh, also a tendency to destroy things when I walk into a room and uh, all the radios and things can just die. How about you? Does that ever happen when you walk into a room? That that was the first few years, and then it, it for me it got less and less and less of that one. But I had to be really careful at at airports and. Um, you know, getting around and about in this world of ours, I had to be really careful what I ate, what I drank, and what I yeah. was doing. Yeah. Those are things that are so true. Everyone involved in this has to be aware of the fact that their body chemistry is not the same, and they, they have to eat and drink very differently. I agree with you there wholeheartedly. Uh, having had that experience myself, although I've never had an NDDE, I have had close encounter experiences. Now, I want to turn to another subject for the last few minutes of our time together. Okay. We haven't talked about past lives yet. And you've got memories of past lives, as, as I recall. That's correct? Yes. Let me say that the after effects of my, um, what I went through. Um, March 29, my doctor said, please, uh, just lay on the sofa and wa watch television. And I've been taking medication every four hours and, um, um, just sort of veg out on life, so to speak. I never turned the television set on because I never did because across my chest, uh, going from left 
to write with sort of sort of like an a bridge, sort of like a rainbow bridge, and and on that bridge passed by all of my past lives. Oh my God! How all many were there? Did you were you able to count them? No, I didn't count them. I just was in awe. Yeah, I had many many lives as a man, many many. Um, you usually uh, as a fighter. <laughs> can you imagine that? I was always a fighter. <laughs> a fight. Well, I know I can easily imagine it because you're a fighter now. Yeah. Uh, not a physical fighter, but I, I think if you were attacked, you certainly would be. You, you've shown that to be the case in the past. Yeah. So, um, so uh, tell us a little bit about some of these past lives. Uh, because they might tell us a little bit about who you are and why you're here in this world. Well, I don't, I don't know that that's true, but, but I do know that I relished a good fight. Uh, and 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 this, this one particular time, and, and I've I've since met the man, and he can remember it too. We both remember it. Um, and it was in, I believe, Greece. Um, and there was this big battle, and and almost everybody was killed, <clears throat> and there was no food, no water, and we we were crawling along. Um, it's sort of like desert terrain, and and we and we just loved being together. We, we loved the fact that we would die together, that this was so good. And we did, we died together. I remember another lifetime when I had these great big, um, what do you call them? Not a sword, but uh, almost like a sledgehammer. Uh -huh. and I, I was out cracking people's heads. And uh, that, that felt so good and somebody cracked mine. <laughs> And yeah. that felt really appropriate. In Norway. That must have been a very long time ago. Well, yeah. And in Norway, I could remember, um, um, I spent three trips to Norway. Love Norway. And, and, and went to this um, specific park. It's sort of like um, um, our park here. Um, where um, our, our our country became our country, you know, the, the Battle of Gettysburg and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, I understand what it. you're getting at. They they had that in Norway. Same thing happened in Norway, and I could remember clearly being uh, uh, the son of of this great great leader. I was his son. And I was there to help him, and stitzel gag, guard or something, and um, and it was Olaf, and I was Olaf's son, and I was there to to help Olaf bring Christianity and a government to Norway, and he was killed, and I was killed in this battle. But but in the battle, th there was this sword, and the and the person 
just ran that sword right through my body. And I can remember saying, wonderful, wonderful. I'm dying for the greater good. And while I was there, uh, I had a camera and I took a picture of where I died. And do you know, there's a tractor there. It's a person's farm now. And there's a tractor where I once died. And it was just so great to be there. Was it a battlefield at one time? Yes. Ah, so that's you 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 could learn about yourself by learning about that battle then. I just knew that loyalty and um, keeping your word and looking around um, is just so great. And being able to learn, always learning, always experiencing, uh, always finding out as much as you could about the universe and always feeling as much as you could and doing as much as you could. I, I was never a wallflower. <laughs> no, you don't have that gene. I have noticed that. <laughs> no, it wasn't there. <laughs> no, not at all. Well, you have a. So this journey into the into the the you you've journeyed out of the body, you've journeyed into the past and examined your own lives. And what is why uh, PMH? Do you think you were chosen to this do this? What is obviously a mission, an intentional mission. I have no idea. Well, I oh, think I might know. You're very outgoing. That would be one reason. You're willing to talk about it. I just know I had the opportunity to see the universe and all of cre cre creativity mm -hmm. from a very different viewpoint. And I feel privileged. I feel absolutely privileged to know what the universe is, to understand how we can uh, exist in this universe, how precious it is, is sort of like what it's all about. It helped me to realize that love is above and beyond what we even think we know. In what sense do you mean that? Love is the universe itself. If we can let go of L-O-V-E and realize that the universe and all that's in the universe is there because of the loving movement of existence and and sound it's like the, the burst that they think that 
that created the universe itself, that burst is pure love. Love in the sense of creativity, love in the sense of what can happen, what we can do, what can be formed from that. And to me, that's, wow, that's real love. And all that we can do and experience, I feel so privileged to be here. It's an honor to be here. It's an honor to be wearing this body. It's an honor to to be able to, to go through what I've gone through life after life and examine every particle and every emotion and every possibility of what we call life and realize it's all love. Yeah. You know, that Annie said, uh, the moment is all we have. Now is life. And she was very right about that, I think. And yep. that's that's your life. That's what you live. You live that way. Yep. Okay. Now, you you are at the age of 86, and so you must be thinking in terms of the conclusion of this journey, of this journey of life. Uh, can you give us any insight as to how how it was that you came to be chosen to do this very unusual and extraordinary life and send this message out into the world? I don't know that I was chosen. Uh, what I'm aware of is that these opportunities were there. So I took them. That's, uh, that is a great answer. It's just like walking down in the, walking the streets and saying to people, do you know anything about a writing group? at random and finding a whole new life for yourself. Yeah. Amazing story. I, I can't quit thinking about it. It's extraordinary. One thing about PMH is it's just one extraordinary story after another. It's quite amazing. So uh, now what from here? You're 86 years old. You, you're not going to be, you look pretty healthy, but you don't know. I mean, I, you know, I have, uh, I have relatives who, in my family, part of my family who live a very long time, uh, and uh, 86 is not considered old in my family, but I would consider myself old at 86. And so when the time comes, how do you propose to, to address the final end of this body? Well, I know that... Um... I'm slower now than I used to be. I know now that um, that an hour in the afternoon of watching television, my favorite shows, is just a privilege. I've never done it before. It's like, wow, I can do this. <laughs> I know that just to touch my husband's skin is a privilege and an honor and a joy and 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 just breathing is a joy 
just you know i i, I just i just feel so lucky to have the life i have you know i may live i i may die at 90 i may die at 100 i may die tomorrow all i know is it's been a great ride <laughs> and you notice folks that when i asked her that question she didn't talk about contemplating death she talked about living life and touching the beautiful statement just to touch my husband's skin what a wonderful way of being when you come are coming toward the end of the time of the body it's extraordinary pmh really very beautiful well do you have any writing projects on the on the books now or not well certainly yeah i thought that would be the, answer. the aliens um and it will have three sections. I'm uh, I'm already being fed what's to be in it. Uh, and then after that, I wanted to write a book on platforms. But I don't know. Now, the, uh, the book on the alien surprises me because you haven't, there's not been much of that in your work. Nope, none. Now, why are you going there? I'm fascinated. Well, I told you. Um, last year. August, middle of August, three, uh, 15 in the morning. That voice spoke. Oh, that's right. That's right. That spoke to me on March 29. Now, bear in mind that voice is not an angel. It is not um, a guide or a guardian of any kind. I know what those voices are like. It is like all of creation talking to me. It's only happened twice in my life. Yes. And, um, you know, I'm doing my job. And then after that, you know, I told you I'd like to do this book on thought forms. And I don't know. If something else is up that voice's sleeve, I don't know. All that I voice's presence in your life is a, is a wonderful blessing and privilege. And your presence in ours is, in turn, a wonderful blessing and privilege for all of us. The energy pouring out of you during this show has been very inspirational. I enjoyed it tremendously. And... It's such a mysterious life, folks. But at the same time, she threw her net out into the world time and again without worrying about where it might fall and made a life out of that despite all of the terror and the pain and the hardship. She did it anyway. PMH Atwater on the journey now i want to thank you so much for being with us pmh don't fail to get edgewalker it's full of fun and wisdom and it's a wonderful journey thank you very much for being with us on dreamland thank you Whitley. thank you ann <laughs> <laughs> and yeah and not forgetting annie's presence as well thank yeah, you Anne. yeah 
You've been listening to Dreamland. Be sure to tune in again next week. Dreamland is brought to you by UnknownCountry.com and its family of subscribers. Our theme music is The O of Pleasure by Ray Lynch. Unknown Country was founded by Ann Streber. Our news editor is Matthew Frizzell. Our coordinator is Amy Safrankova. Whitley Streber is your Dreamland host. And I'm your announcer, Ted Alexander.